welcome to season three of This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley, a podcast about the Bay Area, technology, and culture. I'm your host, Sunil Rajaraman, and I'm joined by my co-host, Yasha Kekis-Wolf. Hey, Yasha, how's it going? <laughs> it's come pretty well. I'm curious, did you watch the season finale or the final season of the show Silicon Valley? I am actually admittedly two seasons behind. Oh, well, two. Wow. That's impressive. Seriously? How'd that happen? You know, it just felt like they kept telling the same joke over and over. Yeah, there's something a little bit about that. But I think there's a part of the storyline that I've appreciated, and that's just how kind of ridiculous and sort of truthful the whole thing feels, right? Does that make sense? It, uh, it's so absurd, uh, but oftentimes the stuff that they say is true. That is for sure. You know what else is kind of absurd, but also true? What's that? The entire story around WeWork. And today, uh, as part of that thread, we uh, we brought in the Wall Street Journal reporter who broke the now infamous weed on a plane story, Elliot Brown. Flying high. He is, uh, you know, he's, he's a killer reporter. Uh, I mean, I was just so impressed by him. Yeah, completely buttoned up, really fair. And I think what I appreciate about his approach is to come at everything as a skeptic, which I think is tough to do here in the Bay Area. This is uh, my favorite interview to date. Uh, I, I, I have to say the conversation was so free-flowing that, I mean, I just wanted to talk to him for another hour. Yeah. And this is a long one and a great one. We hope you enjoy. Do you promise, Neil? Yes. All right. We are, uh, we're recording. We're here with uh, Elliot Brown from The Wall Street Journal. Elliot, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Hey, Elliot, um, are you a Bay Area native? Are you from here? I'm not. I'm an East Coast kid. Uh, I came out here a, almost exactly three years ago today. Uh, what were you doing on the East Coast? Where'd you grow up on the East Coast? So from Western Massachusetts, Amherst, Mass, and uh, lived there, went to college in Minnesota, then moved to New York after school to try to make it in the city as a journalist and, uh, you know, was covering real estate for a while and did that for a long while. And then my eyes started to wander and uh, I could give you the long version or the short. Um, the Yeah, we got time. <laughs> but I, I'm curious, as you as you were a young kid growing up in Amherst and even thinking about going to school in Minnesota, was San Francisco ever on your mind? No, That's not a song, right? Is that a song? Is that like a Tony Bennett song? It feels like a Tony Bennett song. <laughs> Only in the sense I had, uh, I visited here once when I was, uh, it was 2005 and was sort of amazed at, at uh, I don't know, just how sort of offbeat it was and walked around what I later learned was the mission. I was like, this is such a cool city. Uh, and then once came a, a few years later and was like, why is it so cold in August? Um, as some ladies at the airport laughed at me leaving it, leaving the airport in shorts. Uh, but th those are my main experiences. Do you, uh, you still have that San Francisco city sweater that you picked up when you were here in <laughs> August? <laughs> Today it would be a fleece fest. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So Elliot, uh, you are well known for your reporting on WeWork. Um, and, uh, and there was an article that came through my social media that many people are now aware of, uh, our listeners. And I'm just getting right down to business, aren't I? There's like no messing around with Sunil today. <laughs> I, uh, I'm a, I, I was hangry up until a few minutes ago, so uh, I'm, a, I'm good now, though. Um, uh, it's now infamously known in my circles as the, the weed on a plane article. <laughs> I call it flying high. 
that's 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 a good one. I like that. I like that term. Um, when did WeWork first appear on your radar, and how like how how did that how did that even happen? Uh, so it was a really long time ago, actually. So it was 2013, and so I, at the time I was covering real estate. And they were, I was interested in co-working because it was a nascent trend in Brooklyn when things were just sort of starting to change in the office world. And uh, I wanted to meet a couple of the co-working operators. They were the biggest. And I went to meet Adam in lower Manhattan. Uh, and he, the main message he gave me was, we don't think as a real estate reporter, you should be writing a story of, of us. It should be someone else at the paper who's not on the real estate beat. And so uh, the the start of the story is is pretty interesting to me because when you think about and there's obviously been a lot of reporting on Silicon Valley access. WeWork's a New York based company, and so yet it oftentimes gets lumped into kind of Silicon Valley tech, you know, kind of ha- hatred is the wrong word, but can you describe like how that that cognitive dissonance a bit or yeah and and it wasn't at first it wasn't even clear to me what it was because I, I was just very clear that it wasn't um, that that it had the valuation of something that wasn't a real estate company I was like why is it so high uh, and I didn't really know much about Silicon Valley at the time and then gradually I started to realize that almost all of their language all of their the sort of veneer with and the way Adam would dress uh, the, the way they'd market themselves was all straight out of Silicon Valley and a, as was the valuation which is the stuff that I was most interested in and so someone pointed out to me early on they're like oh you you realize the reason that they don't want it to be written as a real estate company is because then they'd be worth a lot less they, they're trying to go for this whole Silicon Valley thing so the timeline from when you met Adam for the first time in New York to moving here, when when happened first? The New York meeting happened first, and then you moved to San Francisco. Yeah, yeah. So I I met him, and then I continued to cover them uh, as a real estate company for you know the real estate section, and then so late twenty sixteen, I started to get uh, more interested in just covering startups. There were actually on the New York City subway, there were just always these ads for these companies that I didn't understand, like Ship. Do you guys remember that one? Oh yeah, S H Y P. Oh, I remember Ship well. I uh, um, offices for a company I co-founded were were really close to them. I remember okay. meeting the founders a while, like long time ago. I haven't talked to them in a while. It seemed a fantastic service, but it's like, how come you just did forty dollars of labor and I give you five dollars? Like what? <laughs> I I remember ordering a ship. I just I only did it once, and it was unbelievable. I had to mail something to my in laws or something like that. Somebody showed up and just packaged it up. And I had in my head, kind of like Lux Valet, yeah. <laughs> this, uh, I better just keep using this right now because there's no way that this is going to last forever. Yes, precisely the same thing. It's like, and you, they gave you $35 free, free to start. And it's like, okay. <laughs> Lux Valet. I miss Lux Valet. I mean, legitimately. Did you ever use Lux Valet? Uh, no, I, 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 but I, I very much used a lot of the other free promos for a lot of the other things. I mean, when Lyft first came to New York, I was like, why do they keep giving me free money? <laughs> I, I, I want to go back to this first meeting with Adam. Sure. So uh, you meet him. What are the, and we, we're going to get into some of the details that you, you know, you eventually kind of sleuthed up, but what was he like? Oh, he was, I mean, it, it comes across. He was super exuberant and really friendly and, and really gracious. And so, you know, I meet for, for 45 minutes and he just tells me about how they're, you know, they only have like five locations at this point. He tells me how they're taking over the world. And he's like, when we open up in Portland in nine months, we'll be full within two weeks. And at the time, you sit there and you think, like, 
wow, that's amazing because he says it with such confidence. But then you leave the office. You're like, how would he even know that? Like, he can't know what's going to happen in nine months. Uh, so he has this presence about him that really is warming. And then, you know, he said uh, I, I, after the meeting, he opens the door of the office. I leave. He just yells to the staff. This is Elliot. Give him whatever he wants. He's a friend. Uh, and yeah, it's gracious. So just charismatic, you know, kind of sucks you into the vortex. And you, you, did you feel good after that meeting? Totally. Yeah. No, I was like, wow, this is an amazing company. And, and you know, I, it, it's not like I had a billion dollars and I was like, here's ready to write a check. So it was sort of a moot uh, point on that side. But um, I, I was interested in writing a story on them. And then it was only it sort of morphed as I realized what their valuation was. How does that change like from that initial meeting where everything's feeling good and you walk out and like Elliot's a friend to everybody in the office and then you learn that they're trying to get you pulled off of the story? To Oh, no, they, they weren't trying. They, they were just up front when I was there saying um, they, they weren't mean about it. They're like, you know, we don't we, we're talking to you, but but we really don't think a real estate reporter should be doing this. We think someone who covers community and, and you know, changing millennial patterns should be covering this company. And so I was just, well, you know, I'm who you, you've got. <laughs> Did he change over time as you got to know him? So, you know, the picture that's painted in that article, again, we'll get into details later, but this, it almost does, it seems too unbelievable to be true. Like some of the stuff, the run DMC anecdote, the, uh, it just, the almost complete disregard for any sort of corporate governance whatsoever. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, if, if you ask people who were there, if you ask the investors, everything just became more as as it went on. Everything became extra. Uh, and so at, at first he was clearly, you know, about uh, rapid growth and, and about being the guy in charge. But but that just became that much more so as the company went along. And so, you know, when I met him, he didn't have 10 votes per share. And then he, he got that a little later. So it's these types of things where the corporate governments, we, there was a quote from um, T. Rowe Price that, that we talked to for a recent article. And their line was, uh, as the valuation rose, the corporate governance eroded. So he took allegedly almost, and so, and you'll have to break down the technical details of this, but uh, around eight hundred million dollars in secondary, uh, and I don't know if those that was through share sales uh, or through the, the combination of of uh, share sales and debt. And so, for our listeners, kind of you know paying attention to this, what that effectively means, and you've read the stories, but uh, uh, the founder uh, cashed out to an unusual amount of money before the company went public. Would you say in your reporting that that's a fair characterization? Oh, totally. It's it's the biggest we could find. Uh, you know, the Groupon chairman, executive chairman, took out. 300 plus. Was it 300 plus? Wow. Okay. I thought it was like 25, be, yeah. 25 pre-IPO. I remember the Andrew Mason story. A that... Andrew Mason did. Then there was the guy who's the chairman whose name I forget, uh, executive chairman. So, oh, okay. But, oh. but uh, you know, I'll, I'll double check this. Did he change after the money or did he change, uh, you know, what did it, was it at all correlated with you know, as he was drawing down money from the company, like, okay, I'm rich, and now I can afford to take more chances. I think even if you listen to his own statements about his past, uh, he always was into money. He, he has this line where he's like, when I moved to New York, I just wanted to make it rich. And, and then my, my wife taught me to stop caring about focusing on money and to follow my heart. And then the money would follow. Uh, so, I mean, it's money was always a big theme. I, but, but you know, uh, as he got richer, he seemed to want to get even richer. So I think that's a sort of common thing one sees. And was that, I know Sino's asked this a couple of times, so I guess, was there a perceptible moment where you were like, oh, this all is different? Um, 
I think it was it, it, the short answer is no. It was really gradually just a crescendo. Uh, but it, it did start to become a peer, it, it, apparent late 2018, sort of just how bad the corporate governance was. That's when I had been working on a story on and not hadn't finally confirmed everything, but working for a long time on a story on how he bought properties and leased them to the company and then found out that they bought a jet. Uh, for you know over sixty million dollars, which is not a normal thing for a company of this size, uh, and you know was then they were starting to go on all these acquisitions that that had nothing to do with the core mission and seemed to completely coincide with his hobbies and interests. So I, I think it was late eighteen when I was like, you know, not only is the 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 valuation of this company something that's pretty concerning to you know c- compared to whatever else we know in the world about real estate companies. But uh, also, it has a lot of corporate governance problems. I want to take a step back for a second, and and uh, what we have a tendency to do, and uh, I do this too. When a story gains momentum, you can hop on the bandwagon and say, "Okay, we work as we work as bad," and all of that. I'll I'll try to play devil's advocate for we work a little bit throughout this interview, although it's difficult. <laughs> um, but can you take a step back and just explain the business model of we work to listeners who may not be as familiar with it in as basic terms as possible? Yeah, sure. And I do think, you know, there's a tendency when, when the media goes in, in herds, you sort of miss the uh, some of the basics. So it's actually, it's a fine business model. Uh, it, it has problems. But what they do is they lease office space long term. So they sign a 10 or 15 year lease for a few floors of a building. And then they go in and they spend some money and they, they chop it up into little glassy offices and add a kombucha bar and, and beer on tap and, you know, all these hipster trappings of design with white subway tile and then and fruit water and then they lease it out short term so either for a month or a year at a time usually by the office or or, you know you get a few offices or sometimes a company like amazon will say well we'll just take the whole building and we'll do it for three years but so it's you know long term buy long sell short but this doesn't sound like an innovative business model insofar as regus has been doing this for a long time Numerous other companies have been doing this. Yeah, yeah, uh, correct. I mean, um, the the main innovation th- they did two things that are different than Regis. They they sort of the design made it cool. So Regis was pretty stodgy and and lifeless. Uh, I, I think a lot of people would say. And then we work really sort of freshened it up for that emerging millennial trends of of you know mason jar mugs and stuff like that. Uh, and then, you know, they, they also really made it more dense than a Regis. And so that, that helps the economics of the business. So you, you, you know, take normally a, a person will get in an, an old stodgy office, will get 250 square feet a person if, if, uh, you're on an old bank and WeWork does it more like 60 square feet a person. So it's, it's really packing people in. What was different for your coverage or even your access when you moved to San Francisco from New York? So by then it had, um, you know, most of the coverage was on the valuation and sort of uh, understanding or not understanding why it was so high. Uh, and by then, Adam had stopped talking to me. Can I uh, press on the valuation number just to get a, a, a give some perspective to the listeners and then wh- how high, describe how you knew the valuation was high. So what do you mean by that? Uh, specifically, sure. So, so when I first came upon them and, and realized their valuation was 1.5 billion, and they just had like five offices for you know a small amount of square footage, I looked at some of the publicly traded real estate companies I knew, and it's like, 
you know, Boston Properties was worth $10 billion, and that was the biggest office landlord in the country, publicly traded office landlord in the country, and they had multitudes of more buildings, and they owned their buildings. Uh, so Couldn't that be said of any tech company, though? Like, if you looked at the valuation uh, of any tech company, couldn't the same narrative be? But why was it so extraordinary, I guess, in this WeWork situation? So, uh, yes. Uh, the the issue was that they were, you know, especially when you compared it to Regis, they were doing the, the same thing. I mean, it, it they surely had different dynamics of demand, but the economics was, were the same proposition. And so, you know, people would go to Regis and they'd pay them and, and Regis would have decent margins. And then people go to WeWork. So it's and, and every time you grow, unlike a software company, every time you add a new user, you have to build out a new office. So it's not like a software company where you spend money and you build software and then every new user who comes in, you just stuff money in your pockets. This, every time they're going to add someone, they need to spend money. So it was pretty clear it had to be compared to something like this. I mean, the, the subway tile multiple is a real thing, Sunil. Right? <laughs> yes. I mean, oh, you've been covering. I think you know, totally. Well, so you, you said something I want to go back to and then want to talk about what your access looked like when you came to the Bay Area or maybe the angle, how it changed your coverage for them. But you said Adam stopped talking to you. Yeah. I mean, it's not like we were talking much, but I'd met him a few times and, and then he stopped meeting. So uh, it's it's not like they were, you know, I was, I was going there every month and he was telling me all sorts of things. So Yeah. But all those all those people that he opened the door up to and said, this is our friend Elliot. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess that didn't. I mean, you know, the, the company was still cooperative uh, and, and they would pe- put people on the phone. Yeah. So it, it's not like it was just, uh, you know, show me the door. So do, does coming here to San Francisco to the Bay Area change the point of view that you have on your coverage of them overall? So I did actually expect when I came out here that uh, – all companies were going to be more like WeWork, where I'd, I'd come out to Silicon Valley and talk to investors, and then, then those investors out here would understand WeWork and its valuation. And a thing I quickly learned is that nobody did. Uh, and so you'd talk to VCs, because I was starting on the venture capital beat out here, and you'd talk to VCs, and they'd say, hmm, well, that's not one I, you know, we looked at it, but uh, I don't really get it. Um, and so that was unexpected. So put yourself in the shoes for a second of the people who did. Uh, so there were clearly uh, large institutions, you know, hundreds of employees probably at this point, et cetera, who believed in the vision and that the company could live up to this ridiculous valuation. What what do you think they were thinking at the time? I think that uh, it, there was just a, a belief that because enough people are saying we're not a real estate company, we're a community company, and that's going to be valued like this, that if other smart people are saying it, then it has to be true. And that's really what was going on. I mean, Adam was extremely convincing, and then he'd say it in one way, and then you'd hear it from others who were really sold on it. They'd try to sell it to you, too, uh, at at the company, and then investors would talk about it in the same way, too. And so I think it was really just a a momentum game where people were looking at others and saying, well, other people are saying this. It's true. And and if, you, you know, in hindsight, it sort of looks ridiculous because the public markets weighed in or almost weighed in. And, uh, you know, the verdict was, no, you should look at it as a real estate company. But uh, at the time, it was saying, well, a community company is going to be valued much higher because we have different values. The, the thing about the story that's so astonishing to me, you know, reading through your work and then other work that's been done after, is the astonishing level of fraud that appeared to be taking place. You know, and so I, I look at the example of leasing back properties that he owns, et cetera. 
So fraud is a strong word. That, that, is, that was disclosed. So um, I, I think the uh, self-dealing is, is the uh, w- more legally acceptable word. Okay, I, I retract, and uh, I, will, uh, I, will, I will say uh, I'll use your words going forward. However, it appeared as though there were massive breakdowns in corporate governance. Um, how does this happen? Yeah, I think on the corporate governance front, all these things, I mean, you know, he, he was leasing properties for himself. Uh, he took out all this money. Then he took out hundreds of millions in loans uh, to himself. He, he restructured the company so he and a few others could get a better tax benefit. So uh, there was a lot of stuff like that that on its own individually in a company with a CEO you trust, I think is okay. And you disclose it and people are like, well, that's a little unsavory, but fine. But when you have all of these things together and you have, you know, this happening at a company that has a really high valuation, that's the thing that sort of shocked people. So, I mean, the answer to your question is this is, is solely a result of founder control. And so Adam, at a time that everyone else was getting it in Silicon Valley for the biggest, hottest companies, secured a voting st- structure for the company where he controlled the whole thing and, and would for, for years to come. And the board gave it to him, as did, you know, other investors, because that was sort of in vogue at the time and everything was going up and to the right. And uh, then if, if you do that for every company on the planet and you just hand the keys over to every founder and you keep giving them billions, at some point, something like this is going to happen. So are you, um, were you before or are you now a skeptic of the cult of the founder or CEO? Uh, I think it's, suffice to say, I'm a skeptic of everything. Everything in Silicon Valley. <laughs> ah, well, there we go. Um, I mean, I, I don't. You know, I, I, my, my macro view on that is uh, when what's happened out here over the past 10, 15 years is the amount of money has come in much faster than the number of good ideas, and so then you create rationalizations for why you should be paying higher values, why you should be doing things that you normally wouldn't in a normal business environment. I think that's a really good insight. Uh, and 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 true, we're seeing you know a lot of a lot of funds being created, and you know a lot of a lot of new companies. But I, I agree with that assessment that there are just not enough good entrepreneurs to support the amount of money that's flooded into the ecosystem. Totally. I mean, yeah. And and why why would there why would the number of good entrepreneurs go up five x? Uh, and, and if you ask these these people who handed Adam or or the other founders founder control, even though they say on their marketing materials we're founder friendly. They weren't in favor of these things, even though they voted for it in the end. I mean, they, they tried to push back. They think that you should have sort of control over a founder. And, and if you look at American business over the past three or four decades, there's just been all sorts of movement in favor of shareholder governance, you know, control and, and shareholder rights uh, that that put limits on founders or on, on CEOs and management. And in Silicon Valley, what you've had over the past 10 years is a complete 180 in that direction. I want to know more about Adam, right? Because in this, in in the work that you've done, I mean, right? So once again, just going back to the article, some of these things just seem so unbelievable. And so um, uh, maybe you can talk a little bit more about the Run DMC anecdote, but this guy, this character, six foot five, boxing, shadow boxing in his office to <laughs> Rihanna. And this, this, it just seems like- I believe a, there was a, a punching bag. There we go. Sorry, punching bag. My, you know, my bad. I'm going off of memory here. Um, but uh, it, it it seems like a villain from like a Bond movie, or it, it just doesn't seem real. 
there was a lot of times when I was like, no, this this can't this has to be exaggerated. And then I'd talk to people they're like, no, that, that's what happened. So, yeah, I, I think it, it, it really I mean, you know, for, as a reporter, it sort of became a caricature of itself uh, where you learn about these new things like the run DMC anecdote uh, and be like, wow. <laughs> talk talk a little bit about that. What was the anecdote? So that one is in in 2016. They uh, had just fired 7% of staff uh, as part of a, a cutback um, that was announced a few weeks earlier. And so this is the first big all hands they have a few weeks later. Uh, and in one of these you know, evening events that all we were staffers supposed to show up at. And so Adam addresses the staff somberly and sort of talks a little bit about this, which was already known to people, but, but it was um, recent. And uh, says, you know, something to the effect of uh, we, we had to do it, cause, but we'll be a stronger company, but, you know, uh, onward, upward. And then tequila shots uh, get passed out. People come from, you know, the back of the room with these big trays of tequila shots. That's kind of like Sunil uh, in the office all the time, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Do you see that look? Except, I mean, the, see that except, look? The, <laughs> except that look. the literally the opposite. Yeah. Uh, at least it was nighttime. Uh, <laughs> So uh, and then, uh, you know, some minutes later, um, uh, the I'm always going to forget his name. W- one of the uh, performers from Run DMC comes out uh, and, you know, embraces Adam and then starts playing a set. And so, y- you know, you can even find these videos on Instagram if you spend way too much time like I did and uh, see, you know, the waiters carrying around these these trays of tequila as people are dancing and uh i mean some people who were there were, were kind of horrified at this it's, it's sort of like what on earth is happening that's a super profound anecdote i mean it's like the picture of it the way that you could probably feel being there either appreciating it or not um is powerful what's the next big story or anecdote that you have in your mind that's like ooh, this one doesn't get the right kind of coverage yet because it is feels like the run dmc thing but not everybody talks about it in the same way um, meaning ones we've already reported that, yeah. uh, what were some ones we had a, a story, a, a, a week ago that, that had a fair amount just on, uh, the board of directors and sort of when these guys, it, it was more business focused and corporate governance focused, but, uh, I don't know. I mean, what was one in there? Uh, we had something on. How one of the directors, Mark Schwartz, uh, stands up and says, "You know, um, I've I've been holding my breath too long. We this we need to fix this company. I, I should have spoken out earlier, uh, but of course, this was after Adam had been fired and the company's valuation had plunged by thirty nine billion dollars. Uh, that he sort of finally speaks up about some of the problems that have been going on. And so, and the, you you segue nicely into the board's culpability in all of this. It does seem like." I don't know. It's just so unbelievable to me that. Well, so first of all, Adam, you know, as you know, enchanting of a figure as he must have been, it, it just feels totally implausible that somebody basically charmed their way to a forty billion dollar valuation, or you know, and 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 made it all the way. There was a board involved in all of this, and what you're telling me that they didn't hit the pause button at any point in this journey. So, uh, yes, <laughs> they uh, were, you know, there was skepticism raised along the way. But I mean, two things. Adam effectively had control of the board. Now, I mean, there were people there who were signing things, but he could have fired them or, or outvoted them. 
Uh, but that does raise the question of why did you even vote yes uh, on these things? And I mean, there, there's not good answers for that, or at least that anyone's told us. Uh, it's more just that I think the feeling of a lot of board members was, well, I mean, I'm sure the subconscious was, well, we're all getting rich right now and it's going great. And so maybe like, you know, maybe they did drink the Kool-Aid. Like maybe this is working out. Like maybe this will be a $47 billion company. Um, but then, you know, at the same time, I think they wanted, they worried that if they spoke up too much or voted no, that they would just get kicked off the board and then then they'd have no voice. Uh, but, you know, in other parts of life, people do that all the time. And, and It sounds like literally one of the world's worst case studies of escalation of commitment. <laughs> <laughs> There's definitely a uh, frog boiling in the water situation here. Um, so there's another narrative that's been painted into this, which is, of course, SoftBank has was involved with this company along with several others. And there's a there's a lot of reporting going around. The information did some reporting on Brandless, one of their portfolio companies that struggled. Uh, there was, I believe, a CEO replacement at WAG. Uh, mm -hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, tell us a bit about the SoftBank narrative and all of this and your perspective on it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it seems to be what it looks like, which is that they committed gobs of money for for a huge amount of startups without uh, a, with, with really only a macro thesis and uh, you know without doing a ton of work and really understanding these things and you know masa frequent masa son the the masayoshi son the ceo of softbank he frequently re referred to we work as an ai company uh, and uh, you know i i don't <laughs> i i didn't know that i actually don't even remember reading that <laughs> Yes. Uh, and like, I mean, you talk to people at WeWork and they laugh when you tell them that. But I, I think there was a uh, just I mean, he, he met Adam so briefly and he had met him in India. But then, you know, Adam gave him a tour in New York over a year later and around a year later. And it was just, I mean, you know, they've described it as like 28 minutes and he committed four billion dollars. Uh, and then, you know, SoftBank did due diligence, but then even as the company was, you know, people internally there were saying, we don't think this is a good idea. We think this is a real estate company. And then it still went through. Uh, and so I, I think a lot of these things are are made by the decision. The ultimate decision is made by one person. And that person uh, has said, it, it, this is all sort of out of the open, which is kind of the, the, the funny thing about it. I mean, he says, I invest with my gut. Uh, which sounds great when things are going up in value, but then if they lose $39 billion of value, you're like, wow, th that may not have been a great strategy. Uh, and so uh, I think that's essentially what's happening is that you, you have a guy, you know, making, throwing around, having armed with $100 billion that, that can spend it freely wherever he wants. And then uh, th that will sort of end as, as one might imagine if you do it quickly. So I'm um, I'm hearing you know kind of a couple of things recur throughout this this story. So it sounds like WeWork was able to successfully raise at higher and higher valuations by positioning themselves as a quote unquote community company rather than a real estate company. I'm hearing that uh, there was escalation of commitment throughout this uh, this thing through through the board. They just wanted to be involved with what could potentially be a large outcome, perhaps. You know, correct me if I'm wrong. Would you say it's it was greed driven because people saw that there was a potential IPO on the horizon? Yeah, I I think that's right. I mean, they weren't <laughs> they they notably they weren't generally increasing their own financial commitments as the company grew in valuation. They, they were sort of sitting out later rounds, but but yeah, they, they were uh, along for the ride. What what other takeaways that 
you know, people often miss about the story that you hope that they would absorb. What are your takeaways as someone who's done a deep dive on this? Would you hope people understand from the WeWork saga? I, I think, and I've been, you know, th- this is sort of what's interested me about coming out here since I, I, I took the job out here. Uh, I, I think there's a lack of, um, culturally, a lack of critical thinking in Silicon Valley, with, in unicorn land at least, uh, where people just fixate on the optimistic answer to something and they don't see the, the sort of all the obvious pitfalls to, to anyone who's looking at it objectively. And, you know, I think a lot of time that's due to you wanting to believe that something can be worth so much so then you can become rich. Uh, but it's also just part of the culture of the Valley where, uh, you know, for whatever reason that everyone has to say everyone else is killing it and, you know, just you take disrupting the world and, and everything. And so that creates something where you don't ask questions like, but isn't it just a real estate company? Why, why is it a Netflix? Did you, did you feel that way? You said you were a little bit skeptical or a lot skeptical about Silicon Valley before you moved out here. You make that comment. Are you skeptical about everything that's happening here? And is that does that make you not want to be here? Like <laughs> it's fun to report on. Um, yeah, I mean, it, I, I, you know, I, I, at least among these private companies, uh, the public ones, uh, I think, do something in a slightly different way. But um, yeah, I, I think that's generally there's both the valuation side of it, and then there's the. Uh, we're doing good for the world side of it, that it just so happens that every company out here happens to be saving the world. And they also are paying better than Wall Street. So like, what are the chances? Uh, so I, I, I think there's, uh, yeah, uh, in general out here, just a lot of um, self-justification that goes on. Do, what do, you, do you buy into the kind of West Coast point of view, Silicon Valley finally being competitive with New York and this causing some of the kind of weirdness around the story around WeWork. Like there, there's this kind of underlying story that you hear a bit in the Bay Area, which is, well, we've been out here and kind of doing our own thing and trying to change the world and being optimistic about everything. Yet we don't really have the same kind of uh, we don't really have the same kind of impact in the world that New York does, that Wall Street does. And and this story seems to kind of jump back across on both sides of the coasts. Do you see that? Do you see that story here where this is a kind of reckoning of Silicon Valley actually being impactful at the scale that? Yeah, I, I think that's true. I had drinks with a VC the other day and they were sort of saying it was amazing for me to, to see that, you know, you know, stuff out here is really sort of secondary. This is someone who used to work on Wall Street. Like, it was amazing out here to see that uh, we, we finally became sort of like front page news. And it's like to me that, that was surprising because I look, the journal's coverage has become really dominant out here within the paper uh, just because we we view Silicon Valley now as as uh, a big part of the American economy. And if you look at the top five companies by market cap, uh, there's um, a lot of evidence for that as well. So, yeah, I mean, I think that it really has become uh a sort of dominant business rival to New York in a lot of ways. And, you know, people are sort of slow to actually realize that out here. Uh, okay, Elliot, I told you I was going to play Silicon Valley apologist, and I am going to play Silicon Valley apologist for, for a minute here. Um, I've been a founder. I've, I've raised venture money and all this stuff, and uh, I've had stuff that's worked out, stuff that's not. But what what if I were to come back to you and say instead, you know, though, the business model is working for VCs. There are enough good outcomes ultimately generated that, you know, and it's a hits-driven business, not unlike Hollywood, where, you know, a couple feature-length films work out, 
well, only a couple of these companies really generate the types of outcomes. And so it is ultimately a numbers game. And sure, you have a WeWork, but um, for a Series A investor in Uber, you know, you did pretty well. Uh, or, you know, like lesser known ones, Zoom, Cloudflare, you, like these VCs did did well and generated returns for their funds. So I think particularly on the consumer side, the answer to that is that the performance of, of and dominance of a company like Uber, uh, which is, you know, give or take a $45 billion market cap right now, was subsidized by something like $15 billion in late stage money that went into it. And that money wouldn't have gone in if they didn't think that it was going to be worth $100 billion. Uh, it, and that's particularly true given that something like 14 of that $15 billion is underwater right now. So uh, you know, people were investing at very inflated, uh, at least what the market has determined today, that were, are, were very inflated valuations then. And so that's what's made I – mean, if Uber hadn't raised that $14 billion, then those Series A investors wouldn't be doing nearly as well. So, I mean, they'd still be doing well. It's still real technology. I'm, I'm not trying to argue that. But, but it's it, on the scale that, that it, you know, whatever the, the 800X or whatever benchmark is getting, uh, it, it would be a lot less. Yeah, I mean, there's there's no argument that many of these businesses that are getting getting funded now should not be raising venture capital or late stage venture capital. But uh, I'm sure you've had many of these drinks with VCs where they'll they'll tell you that for some subset of companies, like particularly cloud SaaS companies, they've done extremely well off of those companies. Totally. Um, I, the 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 broad question for the Valley is, are we still in the midst of a broad bubble, or is there something where consumers now had its reckoning between Lyft and Uber, and that, that was, and WeWork, and that was it? What do you think the answer to that is? Uh, I don't, I, I, this isn't a dodge. I don't know as much about the cloud stuff, so it's harder for me to understand how, what, what is the total addressable market of a single sign-on uh, software. Um, but I just generally things seem very uh, lofty out here, and everything seems to be driven by the, this idea that the world will grow. You know, the, the, the opportunity will grow bigger and bigger and bigger, and so it doesn't seem like the, the sort of rational thinking uh, that even when you talk to VCs over drinks, I mean, they'll say, "Oh yeah, of course it's a bubble," but you know, but our companies are great, but. <laughs> Yeah, no, many of these companies are predicated on continued economic expansion. And as we've seen from uh, 08 and 02, economic expansion never lasts forever. Yeah, and, and when it's uh, so far, you know, you're looking really far into the future to determine, uh, uh, you're assuming growth for years upon years to determine what, if a company is going to be really valuable today. And so, you know, it just, uh, the higher those multiples get, uh, the more precarious things get. Higher the multiples get, the more offers for TV shows that are given out. <laughs> Can we talk a little bit about like how how did the TV show come about? Uh, well, so the the book um, it, it came about because we're doing a book. Um, so my colleague and I, Maureen Farrell, who's who's done a huge amount of these stories with me, uh, particularly in the past year, we you know there was a lot of interest. Some might call it a nonfiction bubble. Um, there's a lot of interest uh, from agents, um, which I had never heard of, heard from before in, in my 13 years in journalism, uh, around the WeWork story. And so we, we sort of very quickly got a book deal to, uh, you know, with Crown Publishing, uh, Division Random House. And so 
uh, were signed up to do a book deal and then sort of very quickly took that deal on the untitled WeWork book that we're doing, uh, untitled and un unwritten, I should add. Um, and uh, then we struck a deal with a production company which uh, thought the best approach is a, a limited series. And then they found uh, Nicholas Braun, who's better known as Cousin Greg from Succession. That's amazing. Uh, if you had to cast the show right now, <laughs> you got to cast it for us. Just, you know, you dream a little bit here. You've had a lot of success with, with the stuff. You got the book coming. You had to, you had to have three, three actors or actresses playing roles in the movie. Who are they? Well, I'm a cultural Luddite, so this won't go well. My, my, my joke has been that we should have Gwyneth Paltrow be Rebecca, uh, Adam's wife, but uh, they're first cousins. So my guess is that isn't going to happen. It, yeah, I, I remember that part about your story. And so, it, in fact, one of the pictures in the article was Adam with Rebecca Paltrow. Uh, yes. Adam's uh, wife is Rebecca Paltrow Newman. And Rebecca. Oh, oh, Rebecca's oh. Rebecca's first cousin it. is Gwyneth Paltrow. I see. And, and they have houses in the Hamptons next to each other. It's very nice. Did his initial success have anything to do with that connection? Um, not in a, a clear way we've been able to discern. I mean, it was pretty, like, she, Rebecca was involved, but, um, it, it was, like, Adam had made some money from, Adam Miguel had made some money from their prior startup. The, the startup, the baby knee pad startup? No, no. So, um, <laughs> no. Uh, he, while he was working on that, he started a side business that ended up being a predecessor to WeWork that was in Brooklyn. And then he disagreed with sort of the approach of the landlords there, and they bought him out. And so then he took his, uh, you know, winnings and, and went to Manhattan. So Sunil so and I are not professional agents, so we can't guarantee that we can get Gwyneth for you. But it sounds like you've got Cousin, Gwe Cousin Greg, you've got Gwyneth. Who else? What other major characters need to be in, the, no in the short story? I mean, um, you know, to us, the, the big characters in this whole thing are uh, Masa. Uh, from SoftBank, um, so Neil, who, who's who's going to be who's going to play Masa? Uh, George Takei. <laughs> he would be he'd be pretty good. Okay, we got this is a, kind of an all star cast we're putting together. <laughs> who else? What other big characters? Uh, one should probably have a, a Jamie Dimon character. Ooh, well, so there was a. there was Jamie Dimon, and it, it, I feel like he was in The Big Short or some other movie, and it was played by. Like Bill Daniel Day Lewis, there was uh, in what was that one? Margin Call. Ah, oh, okay. He seemed like a Jamie Dimon character. Jamie Dimon's been in a couple of movies. Daniel Day Lewis would be incredible, but he retired. Uh, I, oh, I think no. we could get him to come back just for this. So, okay, we got him. <laughs> Who else? What other characters? Uh, one more character. One more. Um, you know, you could have Miguel. You could have MBS, who, who uh, Mohammed bin Salman. Um, you know, he's more of a funny. I'm going to take a role. pass on casting that one. <laughs> yeah, we're, yeah, we can we can do a lot as agents, but I, I don't think we should go there. Um, yeah, I, I I suppose that's it. There's the you know I've always been. He's not really a factor in this, but the the CEO of Regis has always been a. Uh, sort of mystery to me because he's been sitting around for the past 10 years watching WeWork's rise and fall as he had actually done the almost exact same thing on a slightly smaller scale 10 years earlier. Well, before we completely jump off this topic, I know Sunil has some more questions. Uh, I just want to put it out there that we're available as extras. Sunil's like six foot seven and I'm only like five foot two. So the, if you need a tall guy and a short guy, okay. just like walking around <laughs> the offices. Uh, Ashton Kutcher, 
Uh, I, I thought he would be a great Adam at first, but he's an investor and we work. He, and he, I he remember and the, friends. I remember the interview. I think it was a CNBC interview where he's plugging WeWork and justifying the valuation. Did you did you talk to him at all? We we didn't talk to Ashton. You know, I don't even know if we tried. Um, good question for the book. Uh, and yeah, he he and Adam are friends. Uh, became friends over time, and that interview was actually had a, I don't know, Adam sort of looked like he had gained 10 years in there. Uh, apparently he was on some diet, someone told me. Um, and uh, he also said something that I hadn't even realized till my colleague Maureen rewatched it recently where he said, and this was in January of this year, that WeWork has, now has enough cash to last for four or five years and they nearly ran out of cash in November. Yeah, the uh, the whole Ashton Kutcher threat is an interesting one. I mean, he he is known as being one of the most successful angel investors. I think he had Twitter, he had Uber, he had some others. Uh, and watching that interview was was sort of unbelievable. Um, yeah, I mean, they, I, I don't know. I, I don't know too much about their friendship other than that they spent a fair amount of time together. And uh, Bloomberg had reported, I think they, they were pitching together some uh, Shark Tank-like show related to WeWork before the, 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 the fall. Well, America loves second acts. And so uh, there, w- w- I have two questions for you. Will there be an Adam Newman second act? And what will it be? Uh, the, uh, the answer for both is I have no idea. Uh, he's He clearly has a lot of money now. Um, and he, he certainly is not lacking in ambition. And this is also a, a environment where entrepreneurs who are able to build things rapidly that have his type of drive are always able to raise more money. So uh, I also would think that he won't have trouble raising money for if he wants to go. What about like Adam and Travis together (laughs) in a startup? (laughs) That would be a lot of energy. Yeah, I think that 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 would be uh, that would be stressful for employees. Um, But, uh, um, you know, I I just I I feel like there is going to be something for him. What what does he do now? Do you are you in contact at all with him? Uh, no, we we haven't been able to. I mean, we talked to his PR person, but but we don't really know what uh, he's been up to. The New York Post reported he's been surfing a fair amount, uh, which which is what we've heard anecdotally. But um, I I do not have a good sense of what he's up to these days. Is he a good person? Um. I don't know that I'm that's something I can weigh in on uh, you know yeah that's uh, opens up a lot of different questions um, I mean I certainly if the question is like did he see this as something was this all about him and all about self-enrichment and did he ever just not believe the story he was telling I think he, he did believe the story he was telling I mean he clearly was very interested in, in making money but uh, I think he did believe when he said, we're going to create this we world and just didn't see sort of some of the disconnect between how much he was focusing on me versus we. Uh, last last one along this lines, and then we're going to close out with uh, with, with Yasha questions uh, uh, here, um, one that I hope you had a chance to think about. But does he really want to live forever? Because that was something you highlighted in the article. and. You know, when, when you ask people at WeWork, when I would say, you know, there were a couple of these things. It was like, I heard, you know, first I heard like, oh, he wants to be prime minister of Israel and or wanted to. And then I ran that by someone. They're like, oh, no, the only thing that I heard was him say he wants to be president of the world. So you, you, you ask people things like this and 
they don't know the answer. I mean, he, he's spending money investing in a life extension startup, and Rebecca has talked, uh, his wife has talked on a podcast about floating that potential, uh, living forever. But um, what does he actually think in his likelihood that that's going to happen? Uh, I, I would love to know the answer to that. Hot take on San Francisco. And then I'm going to ask you the question about who you believe listeners should listen to, watch, follow on the networks that you spend your time. But hot take on San Francisco. Uh, what's this place like in 10 years? Um, I think it's going to be that much more techie, uh, you know, even if one sees a recession, like, you know, these companies are clearly hiring here and that's sort of where the economy is going into these nodes. Uh, so I think you'll have um, a lot more offices filled with tech people and uh, higher rents and uh, higher everything. Are you going to be here? No, no, I don't think I'll be here more than another one or two years. Back to New York? Uh, or, or somewhere else, um, you, you know, eventually back to New York. That, that is the, the long-term home. We appreciate you being here today and sharing uh, this kind of view into the work that you've been doing around WeWork in particular. Before we let you go, we do want to ask you to give a recommendation to the listeners on who they should follow on the social networks and the networks that you spend your time. So can you give us a couple of recommendations or a recommendation maybe on Twitter? We know you're on Twitter. Uh, I'm definitely on Twitter and spend too much time there. Um, I still haven't had enough time to really think about this. Uh, I, I enjoy Mike Isaac. Um, Guest of the show. Yes. Um, uh, you know, I enjoy some of the more political types, uh, Matt Ford of uh, The Atlantic. But, um, it, it, yeah, it, I guess we'll go with Mike for my VC, uh, Silicon Valley one. We want to, you know, you've spent so much time. You've been generous, generous with us here. Uh, give us something you want to plug. Oh, you should buy our forthcoming book that doesn't have a title. <laughs> yeah, I I am reading this book for sure. Uh, this is, this has got to be, uh, to me, this tops all of the other stories. All, all of them. All of them. All of them. Can we pre-order it now? Um, no. Uh, I mean, you can pre-order it with me. Uh, <laughs> take uh, handwritten orders. Um, well, we get two of them. Maybe a few more? We'll get a few more. Okay. We've already got two then. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, uh, for the for the benefit of our listeners, your Twitter handle? Elliot WB. Elliot with one L, one T. Okay. Well, Elliot, this was incredible. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Can we talk about Aston Kutcher for a second? Sure, we can. I like I I feel like he is like some conspiratorial like figurehead in the world of Silicon Valley. Like he's involved in just about everything. You know, I've actually I have to admit I've heard great things about him uh, as an investor, as an entrepreneur. So the WeWork thing seems inconsistent. Yeah. I think we got to get him on the show. Today was really fascinating. Like, really fascinating. I, I got to admit, I've read most everything that Elliot and the team have written. And I still feel like every single time I read or hear, and especially hearing it directly from him, it feels like there's something new and crazy. This is at the top of my uh, book list for, for 2020 when it does come out. It yeah. sounds like it's going to be a few months yet, but this is a failure of corporate governance at every possible level. It's crazy. I think we should, and dear listeners, as you're listening, maybe tweet us and give us some suggestions on book titles for this book, because it's got to be a great book title to be able to sell what a great book it's going to be. Yeah, Elliot asked us for titles uh, as he was walking out. You can tweet uh, me at subes01, S-U-B-E-S-01, 
or Yasha at K-A-Y-K-A-S. Hey, uh, if you enjoyed today's show as much as I enjoy sitting in a really hot closet with Sunil and a guest recording it, what we'd love for you to do is on the app that you listen to this podcast, go back and rank us five stars and add a comment in. It helps many more people find this podcast. We're really glad we got to release one more episode before the end of the year. Thanks for listening, as always.